269, Part 4, Chapters 3 and 4. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 269. Is it fall yet? This week's episode is brought to you by Knit Circus, the e-newsletter that can arrive in your mailbox delivering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can sign up at www.knitcircus.com. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative. We publish books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? And Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. Well, if all has gone well, I am in Dallas teaching while you are downloading and listening to this. And that's just peachy keen with me. Although, when I checked the weather before leaving, it was supposed to be hot. And that's okay. I'm fine with it. Mostly because... I will get to come home afterwards. And it should be a dry heat. How can I complain if it's a dry heat, right? I mean, I can. I can always complain. I can find something. Give me time. But dry heat, not a bad thing. And plus, uh, honestly, I'm sure I will be inside uh, in air conditioning most of the time. Ooh, and speaking of air conditioning and being inside, if you go to my Ravelry projects page, you will see that I did a thing called a layering shrug. This was the thing I attempted to do for the Ravelinette games and blue. I did the thing for Cooperative Press, which was a design for the upcoming Defarge Does Sherlock book. That thing I managed to finish, but the layering shrug, it took me a little longer than I had anticipated. I finished it finally, and it's marvelous for having indoors. I made it out of lace weight. It's light, it's airy, but because it is lace weight wool, it of course keeps you warm, even though it's big and airy and light and gorgeous and very pretty and ever so feminine in a kind of awesome way. So uh, you might want to consider making that pattern. I think it was free. I think it's a free download from a store in London, maybe? I can't. Anyway, lovely little thing on my Ravelry page. It's purple. You'll see a big purple stretched out picture of me me blocking, uh, blocking it. So since I have no idea what the news is between when you last listened and now, I don't have any extra news for you. So I am just going to get on with Gulliver. So one of the first jokes in chapter three is I will make a vast assumption here, something that will probably be lost on you as it was lost on me, unless you are a scholar of, say, 1500s and Emperor Charles V. Emperor Charles V was a Holy Roman Emperor. He ruled over, check this out, Spain, Italy, the Netherlands, and a lot of North and South America, and a bunch of islands too. This guy was all over the place. And this is what, 1500 to 1558. So what, that's when 
Henry Tudor, Henry the Henry the Eighth, yeah. So they're about the same time. You can see, knowing that, why the English would have been a little nervous about the Spanish, and why when Elizabeth was able to light out and let Drake sink the Spanish Armada, it meant a lot. If the Holy Roman Emperor, who was the king of Spain, was also in charge of all those other places. Now, for those of you who've been with Craftlit and Just the Books for a while, you may remember that when we did A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, there's a satiric piece that Twain wrote called The Awful German Language, I think, where he makes jokes about German. Now, he, he read and spoke German and French, I think. And, uh, and so we are not, it's not that we've never seen jokes about German before. It's that I've never seen this joke about German. Evidently, Charles V, in discussing the languages of the places that he ruled over, supposedly said, I do not know if this is true or apocryphal or what, but it's hysterical. He said he would, and this is a quote, speak Spanish to God, Italian to women, French to men, and German to my horse. <laughs> hey, Italian, get, the women get Italian. That's, that's pretty good for the women, right? I mean, it's the language of love. So Spanish, but eh. Italian doesn't stink. French to men. I guess, is French the language of commerce at that point? I'm not sure. Well, politics, probably. Uh, and German. German to my horse. He evidently didn't speak German very well either. So he's dissing it probably because he wasn't very good at it. And he was trying to make a dig because it's not fair. I want to speak German. If I can't speak it right, I'm not going to speak it at all. <laughs> so, you will get more and more of the conflict and the difference between Gulliver and the Yahoos, and you will start to see that he is very, very, very much in this weird position, even in where they put him to live. He is in between the Huynams and the Yahoos. He is of neither and between both. And that uh, puts him in kind of a difficult situation. And one of the things that has made the Huynam so curious about him is he's clean, for one thing, but also his clothing. They, they assume that the clothes are part of his body. And that's why in the previous chapters, they were so freaked out when he took off his hat. It's like, whoa, you can take off your head? That is so cool. So, there's those kind of basic misunderstandings, which make perfect sense if you are a horse with no clothes and you live among humans who also have no clothes. It would be very strange to see someone with clothings on. Now, because Swift, like Twain, is too smart and too good a writer to make things too simplistic, um, he, he, he allows for interesting layers in the people he meets. Just like in, in Lilliput, they're small-minded and, and, uh, and petulant, and, and the emperor is not so nice to Gulliver. Uh, that doesn't mean he didn't have good qualities as well. I mean, they fed Gulliver and, and clothed him and housed him and all of that stuff at, at great expense to their, their country. And um, 
and the Brobdingnagians, although they only ever saw him as a pet, they, they didn't squish him, and, uh, and they weren't all horrible to him. They certainly looked at him as a toy and, and a diminutive instead of as a, a full-grown man and a, a fully formed person, but, but they weren't horrible all the time. And, uh, and the, the poor people in part three, uh, you know, I, th I think Swift l looked at them not with scorn, but with sadness and pity more than anything. You know, people who are, are too narrowly focused to, to see the forest. They can't see the forest for the trees kind of thing. Well, here, where we are with the Huinims and the Yahoos, I'm ignoring the Yahoos for a moment and just focusing on the Huinims, you will find that there are certain things that they simply do not have words for. It's like, uh, you know, the, the everybody says, although I think it's untrue, uh, that you know, Eskimos have a hundred words for snow or, or something like that. It's one of those things that people just say, and I, I don't actually think it is accurate. Um, well, the Huinams don't have words for some things because they simply cannot conceive of the things that they don't have words for. And they will flat out refuse to believe that some things are true because they can't, because they haven't seen it before. Well, this is a very limited way to live. One of the things that makes humans remarkable and, um, and, and in some ways it's one of those things that people look at Americans and, and point at as being one of our valuable traits is we can look at a situation and almost always see what could be. Whereas if you grow up in a society where that kind of thinking is not in, allowed or encouraged, um, you don't see the kind of ridiculously rapid growth that you saw in the, the United States um, in the last two, 200 years. And, and it was due to... Um, people all over the world, I mean, going back to making paper in China and and uh, explosives and, and things like that, and, and then into the Industrial Revolution where, you know, people from all over the world are coming up with amazing things, and and uh, the refinements that were made in the, the 19th and 20th centuries to, to all of those things. It's those kinds of minds, the ones that can see things that don't exist yet and see a way to make them exist, those minds are the minds that propel us forward as as humanity you know it's one of those things that makes us unique is that imagination that drive to to think of new to find new to discover new you go west young man and all of that stuff well you're gonna find that attitude very much lacking in the huinams and you're you're gonna see it pop up in in different places so so while it would be very easy and a very pat way to look at it to say, oh, well, Swift is just promoting the Huinams as perfect. Well, no, Swift is never going to do that to you. It will always be more complicated than that. But when we remember that Gulliver is basically a fairly simple man, and he has been very, very influenced by all of the places that he has visited during the course of this book, landing here and seeing the yahoos are, who are so not what he wants to see himself as, and the huinams, who are beautiful, oh, I mean, horses, wow, what a beautiful work of nature the horse is, just in general. And so, you, you look at the physical majesty 
of the horse. And poor Gulliver is sitting there. The only thing he's got going for him is a hat and a coat with peplums on it. The poor guy, I mean, of course he's going to look at the Weenums and go, oh, that, that's the pinnacle. That's what I want to be. That's what, that's what I should be. You can see, you can feel it, why he would be there. Now, he will have a tricky time in explaining his world to the Huynams. You know, we've, we've seen him explain politics and financial stuff and, and all of these things to, to different groups. And of course, what Swift has Gulliver explain and how he has Gulliver explain it has always been tailored to the group that Gulliver happens to be talking to. Well, that's fine. He's going to have a hard time doing this with the Weenums. I mean, for one thing, there's the language problem. But the, the other thing is he can't call himself, or anybody he talks about back in England, a Yahoo. So at the time when Gulliver was traveling, Queen Anne was still on the throne. How do you explain, how do you explain a queen? How do you explain a monarch? How do you explain the society he comes from without using the yahoos as reference, it's going to be tricky and he's going to try. And that is pretty much the extent of what you're getting today. So I'm going to send you off into chapters three and four of part four of Gulliver's Travels. Chapter three. The author, studious to learn the language, the Hoenum, his master, assists in teaching him the language described Several Hoenums of quality come out of curiosity to see the author. He gives his master a short account of his voyage. My principal endeavor was to learn the language which my master, for so I shall henceforth call him, and his children and every servant of his house was desirous to teach me, for they looked upon it as a prodigy that a brute animal should discover such marks of a rational creature. I pointed to everything and inquired the name of it, which I wrote down in my journal book when I was alone and corrected my bad accent by desiring those of the family to pronounce it often. In this employment, a sorrel nag, one of the under-servants, was very ready to assist me. In speaking, they pronounce through the nose and throat, and their language approaches nearest to the high Dutch or German of any I know in Europe, but is much more graceful and significant. The Emperor, Charles V., made almost the same observation when he said that if he were to speak to his horse, it should be in high Dutch. The curiosity and impatience of my master were so great that he spent many hours of his leisure to instruct me. He was convinced, as he afterwards told me, that I must be a Yahoo, but my teachableness, civility, and cleanliness astonished him, which were qualities altogether so opposite to those animals. He was most perplexed about my clothes, reasoning sometimes with himself whether they were a part of my body, for I never pulled them off till the family were asleep and got them on before they waked in the morning. My master was eager to learn from whence I came, how I acquired those appearances of reason which I discovered in all my actions, and to know my story from my own mouth, which he hoped he should soon do by the great proficiency I made in learning and pronouncing their words and sentences." To help my memory, I formed all I learned into the English alphabet and writ the words down with the translations. This last, after some time, I ventured to do in my master's presence, 
It cost me much trouble to explain to him what I was doing, for the inhabitants have not the least idea of books or literature. In about ten weeks' time I was able to understand most of his questions, and in three months could give him some tolerable answers. He was extremely curious to know from what part of the country I came, and how I was taught to imitate a rational creature, because the yahoos, whom he saw I exactly resembled in my head, hands, and face that were only visible, with some appearance of cunning and the strongest disposition to mischief, were observed to be the most unteachable of all brutes. I answered that I came over the sea from a far place, with many others of my own kind, in a great hollow vessel made of the bodies of trees, that my companions forced me to land on this coast, and then left me to shift for myself. It was with some difficulty and by the help of many signs that I brought him to understand me. He replied that I must needs be mistaken, or that I said the thing which was not, for they have no word in their language to express lying or falsehood. He knew it was impossible that there could be a country beyond the sea, or that a parcel of brutes could move a wooden vessel whither they pleased upon the water. He was sure no Hoenum alive could make such a vessel or would trust yahoos to manage it. The word Hoenum in their tongue signifies a horse, and its etymology the perfection of nature. I told my master that I was at a loss for expression, but would improve as fast as I could, and hoped in a short time I should be able to tell him wonders. He was pleased to direct his own mare, his colt, and foal, and the servants of the family to take all opportunities of instructing me, and every day, for two or three hours, he was at the same pains himself. Several horses and mares of quality in the neighborhood came often to our house upon the report spread of a wonderful yahoo that could speak like a hoinum, and seemed, in his words and actions, to discover some glimmerings of reason." These delighted to converse with me. They put many questions and received such answers as I was able to return. By all which adventures, I made so great a progress that in five months from my arrival, I understood whatever was spoke and could express myself tolerably well. The Huinum who came to visit my master, out of a design of seeing and talking with me, could hardly believe me to be a right yahoo, because my body had a different covering from others of my kind. They were astonished to observe me without the usual hair or skin, except on my head, face, and hands. But I discovered that secret to my master upon an accident which happened about a fortnight before. I have already told the reader that every night when the family were gone to bed, it was my custom to strip and cover myself with my clothes. It happened one morning early that my master sent for me by the sorrel nag who was his valet, when he came, I was fast asleep, my clothes fallen off on one side, and my shirt above my waist. I awaked at the noise he made, and observed him to deliver his message in some disorder. After which, he went to my master, and in a great fright, gave him a very confused account of what he had seen. This I presently discovered, for going as soon as I was dressed to pay my attendance upon his honour, he asked me the meaning of what his servant had reported that I was not the same thing when I slept as I appeared to be at other times, that his valet assured him some part of me was white, some yellow, at least not so white, and some brown. I had hitherto concealed the secret of my dress in order to distinguish myself as much as possible from that cursed race of yahoos, but now I found it in vain to do so any longer. 
Besides, I considered that my clothes and shoes would soon wear out, which already were in declining condition, and must be supplied by some contrivance from the hides of yahoos or other brutes, whereby the whole secret would be known. I therefore told my master that in the country from whence I came, those of my kind always covered their bodies with the hairs of certain animals prepared by art, as well as for decency, as to avoid inclemencies of air both hot and cold, of which, as to my own person, I would give him immediate conviction, if he pleased to command me, only desiring his excuse if I did not expose those parts that nature taught us to conceal. He said my discourse was all very strange, but especially the last part, for he could not understand why nature should teach us to conceal what nature had given, that neither himself nor family were ashamed of any part of their bodies, but, however, I might do as I pleased. Whereupon, I first unbuttoned my coat and pulled it off. I did the same with my waistcoat. I drew off my shoes, stockings, and breeches. I let my shirt down to my waist and drew up the bottom, fastening it like a girdle about my middle to hide my nakedness. My master observed the whole performance with great signs of curiosity and admiration. He took up all my clothes in his pastern, one piece after another, and examined them diligently. He then stroked my body very gently, and looked around me several times, after which he said it was plain I must be a perfect yahoo, but that I differed very much from the rest of my species in the whiteness and smoothness of my skin, my want of hair in several parts of my body, the shape and shortness of my claws behind and before, and my affection of walking continually on my two hinder feet. He desired to see no more, and gave me leave to put on my clothes again, for I was shuddering with cold. I expressed my uneasiness at his giving me so often the appellation of Yahoo, an odious animal for which I had so utter an hatred and contempt. I begged he would forbear applying that word to me, and take the same order in his family and among his friends whom he suffered to see me. I requested likewise that the secret of my having a false covering to my body might be known to none but himself, at least as long as my present clothing should last, for as to what the sorrel nag his valet had observed, his honour might command him to conceal it. All this my master graciously consented to, and thus the secret was kept till my clothes began to wear out, which I was forced to supply by several contrivances that shall hereafter be mentioned. In the meantime, he desired I would go on with my utmost diligence to learn their language, because he was more astonished at my capacity for speech and reason than at the figure of my body, whether it were covered or no, adding that he waited with some impatience to hear the wonders which I promised to tell him. From thenceforward, he doubled the pains he had been at to instruct me. He brought me into all company and made them treat me with civility, because, as he told them privately, this would put me into good humour and make me more diverting. Every day when I waited on him, beside the trouble he was at in teaching, he would ask me several questions concerning myself, which I answered as well as I could, and by those means he had already received some general ideas, although very imperfect. It would be tedious to relate the several steps by which I advanced to a more regular conversation, but the first account I gave of myself in any order and length was to this purpose, that I came from a very far country, as I already had attempted to tell him, with about fifty more of my own species, that we travelled upon the seas in a great hollow vessel made of wood and larger than his honour's house. I described the ship to him in the best terms I could, 
and explained by the help of my handkerchief displayed how it was driven forward by the wind, that upon a quarrel among us I was set on shore on this coast, where I walked forward without knowing whither, till he delivered me from the persecution of those execrable yahoos. He asked me who made the ship, and how it was possible that the hominums of my country would leave it to the management of brutes. My answer was that I durst proceed no further in my relation, unless he would give me his word and honour that he would not be offended, and that I would tell him the wonders I had so often promised. He agreed, and I went on by assuring him that the ship was made by creatures like myself, who in all the countries I had travelled, as well as in my own, were the only governing rational animals, and that upon my arrival hither, I was as much astonished to see the Hawinum act like rational beings as he or his friends could be in finding some marks of reason in a creature he was pleased to call a Yahoo, to which I owned my resemblance in every part, but could not account for their degenerate and brutal nature. I said farther, that if good fortune ever restored me to my native country to relate my travels hither, as I resolved to do, everybody would believe that I said the thing which was not, that I invented the story out of my own head, and with all possible respect to himself, his family and friends, and under his promise of not being offended, our countrymen would hardly think it probable that a hoenum should be the presiding creature of a nation and a yahoo the brute. Chapter 4 The Hoenum's Notion of Truth and Falsehood The Author's Discourse Disapproved by His Master The Author Gives a More Particular Account of Himself and the Accidents of His Voyage My Master heard me with great appearances of uneasiness in his countenance, because doubting or not believing are so little known in this country that the inhabitants cannot tell how to behave themselves under such circumstances. And I remember in frequent discourses with my master concerning the nature of manhood in other parts of the world, having occasionally to talk of lying and false representation, it was with much difficulty that he comprehended what I meant, although he had otherwise a most acute judgment. For he argued thus, that the use of speech was to make us understand one another and to receive information of facts. Now, if any one said the thing which was not, these ends were defeated because I cannot properly be said to understand him, and I am so far from receiving information that he leaves me worse than in ignorance. For I am led to believe a thing black when it is white, and short when it is long. And these were all the notions he had concerning that faculty of lying, so perfectly well understood and so universally practiced among human creatures. To return from this discourse, when I asserted that the yahoos were the only governing animals in my country, which my master said was altogether past his conception, he desired to know whether we had hoenum among us, and what was their employment. I told him we had great numbers, that in summer they grazed in the fields, and in winter were kept in houses, with hay and oats, where yahoo servants were employed to rub their skins smooth, comb their manes, pick their feet, serve them with food, and make their beds." I understand you well, said my master. It is now very plain from all you have spoken that whatever share of reason the yahoos pretend to, the hoenum are your masters. I heartily wish our yahoos would be so tractable. I begged his honor would please to excuse me from proceeding any further, because I was very certain that the account he expected from me 
would be highly displeasing, but he insisted in commanding me to let him know the best and the worst. I told him he should be obeyed. I owed that the Hoenums among us, whom we called horses, were the most generous and comely animal we had, that they excelled in strength and swiftness, and when they belonged to persons of quality, employed in travelling, racing, and drawing chariots, they were treated with much kindness and care till they fell into diseases or became foundered in the feet, but then they were sold and used to all kind of drudgery till they died, after which their skins were stripped and sold for what they were worth, and their bodies left to be devoured by dogs and birds of prey. But the common race of horses had not so good fortune, being kept by farmers and carriers and other mean people who put them to great labor and fed them worse. I described as well as I could our way of riding, the shape and use of a bridle, a saddle, a spur, and a whip, of harnesses and wheels. I added that we fastened plates of a certain hard substance called iron at the bottom of their feet to preserve their hooves from being broken by the stony ways on which we often traveled. My master, after some expressions of great indignation, wondered how we dared to venture upon a hoenum's back, for he was sure that the meanest servant in his house would be able to shake off the strongest yahoo, or, by lying down and rolling upon his back, squeeze the brute to death. I answered that our horses were trained, up from three or four years old, to the several uses we intended them for, that if any of them proved intolerably vicious, they were employed for carriages, that they were severely beaten while they were young for any mischievous tricks, that the males, designed for common use of riding or draught, were generally castrated about two years after their birth to take down their spirits and make them more tame and gentle, that they were indeed sensible of rewards and punishments, but his honor would please to consider that they had not the least tincture of reason any more than the yahoos in this country. It put me to the pains of many circumlocutions to give my master a right idea of what I spoke, for their language doth not abound in variety of words, because their wants and passions are fewer than among us. But it is impossible to express his noble resentment at our savage treatment of the Hoenum race, particularly after I had explained the manner and use of castrating horses among us to hinder them from propagating their kind and to render them more servile. He said if it were possible there could be any country where yahoos alone were endued with reason, they certainly must be the governing animal, because reason will in time always prevail against brutal strength. But considering the frame of our bodies, and especially of mine, he thought no creature of equal bulk was so ill-contrived for employing that reason in the common offices of life. Whereupon he desired to know whether those among us whom I lived resembled me or the yahoos of his country. I assured him that I was as well-shaped as most of my age, but the younger and the females were much more soft and tender, and the skins of the latter generally as white as milk. He said I differed indeed from other yahoos, being much more cleanly and not altogether so deformed, but in point of real advantage he thought I differed for the worse that my nails were of no use either to my fore or hinder feet. As to my forefeet, he could not properly call them by that name, for he never observed me to walk upon them, that they were too soft to bear the ground, 
that I generally went with them uncovered, neither was the covering I sometimes wore on them of the same shape or so strong as that of my feet behind, that I could not walk with any security, for if either of my hinder feet slipped, I must inevitably fall. He then began to find fault with other parts of my body, the flatness of my face, the prominence of my nose, mine eyes placed directly in front so that I could not look on either side without turning my head, that I was not able to feed myself without lifting one of my forefeet to my mouth, and therefore nature had placed those joints to answer that necessity. He knew not what could be the use of those several clefts and divisions in my feet before, that these were too soft to bear the hardness and sharpness of stones without a covering made from the skin of some other brute, that my whole body wanted a fence against heat and cold, which I was forced to put on and off every day with tediousness and trouble. And lastly, that he observed every animal in this country naturally to abhor the yahoos, whom the weaker avoided and the stronger drove from them, so that supposing us to have the gift of reason, he could not see how it were possible to cure that natural antipathy which every creature discovered against us, nor, consequently, how we could tame and render them serviceable. However, he would, as he said, debate the matter no further, because he was more desirous to know my own story, the country where I was born, and the several actions and events of my life before I came hither. I assured him how extremely desirous I was that he should be satisfied in every point, but I doubted much whether it would be possible for me to explain myself on several subjects whereof his honour could have no conception, because I saw nothing in his country to which I could resemble them. That, however, I would do my best and strive to express myself by similitudes humbly desiring his assistance when I wanted proper words which he was pleased to promise me. I said my birth was of honest parents in an island called England, which was remote from this country, as many days' journey as the strongest of his honour's servants could travel in the annual course of the sun, that I was bred a surgeon, whose trade is to cure the wounds and hurts in the body, got by accident or violence, that my country was governed by a female man, whom we called Queen, that I left it to get riches, whereby I might maintain myself and family when I should return, that in my last voyage I was commander of the ship and had about fifty yahoos under me, many of which died at sea, and I was forced to supply them by others picked out from several nations, that our ship was twice in danger of being sunk, the first time by a great storm, and the second by striking against a rock. Here my master interposed by asking me how I could persuade strangers out of different countries to venture with me after the losses I had sustained and the hazards I had run. I said they were fellows of desperate fortunes, forced to fly from the places of their birth on account of their poverty or their crimes. Some were undone by lawsuits, others spent all they had in drinking, whoring, and gaming, Others fled for treason, many for murder, theft, poisoning, robbery, perjury, forgery, coining false money, for committing rapes or sodomy, for flying from their colours or deserting to the enemy, and most of them had broken prison. None of these durst return to their native countries for fear of being hanged or of starving in a jail, and therefore were under a necessity of seeking a livelihood in other places. During this discourse, my master was pleased often to interrupt me. I had made use of many circumlocutions in describing to him the nature of the several crimes 
for which most of our crew had been forced to fly their country. This labor took up several days' conversation before he was able to comprehend me. He was wholly at a loss to know what could be the use or necessity of practicing those vices, to clear up which I endeavored to give him some ideas of the desire of power and riches, of the terrible effects of lust, intemperance, malice, and envy. All this I was forced to define and describe by putting of cases and making suppositions, after which, like one whose imagination was struck with something never seen or heard of before, he would lift up his eyes with amazement and indignation. Power, government, war, law, punishment, and a thousand other things had no terms wherein that language could express them, which made the difficulty almost insuperable to give my master any conception of what I meant. But being of an excellent understanding, much improved by contemplation and converse, he at last arrived at a competent knowledge of what human nature in our parts of the world is capable to perform, and desired I would give him some particular account of that land which we call Europe, especially of my own country. So more on that next week. Because now, now I must leave you. I must go and record Wuthering Heights for the subscriber supporters, and uh, all sorts of stuff is just going to pop up while I'm in Dallas, and there it is. I hope you have had a good week. I hope you have a good week coming up. And I will be back live and in person with you on September 21st with chapters four and five of Gulliver's Travels. Thanks so much for sticking with me. We're almost at the end. Oh, I can't believe it. All right, have a great one. I will talk to you soon. Bye. There are many ways to listen to Craftlet. You can listen on your smartphone via the Stitcher Radio app. You can subscribe free through iTunes. Or you can download and listen to the iPhone, iTouch, and Android app, where you'll receive occasional extras for the show. Craftlet is supported in a number of ways. Knit Circus, the free e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Also, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series, Volume 2, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, is now in pre-orders. You can find out more from the links in the show notes at craftlit.com. Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories from the heart and home. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative publishing books not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.